0: And I was like, instead of just talking about it and writing about it and raising money for programs that try to make college better by creating better professors, fuck that noise. I'm going to go build something that helps people escape from it altogether.
1: We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds of the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clair. Live and live free. Well, hello, my Liberty kitty cats, and welcome back to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast here on what is now known as the Lions of Liberty Network, or you might be listening to this on the solo Lions of Liberty with Mark Clare feed. We've talked about this for a couple weeks now. We actually have a whole episode um, on the Lions of Liberty Network feed explaining this, but basically you have a couple options now. You can either just subscribe to the Lions of Liberty Network, get all three of these shows, or if you happen to like one of ours more than another or something like that, that or want to get some extra content, uh, something that each of us are going to do on our own um, through those individual feeds, you can also choose to subscribe to one of our feeds. So you can check out Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire. That is my personal feed. You can check out Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams, John Odermatt with Finding Freedom. It's all there available. We just have given you more options, essentially. So that is part of our, our kind of our growth plan for 2022. You are going to be seeing uh, some changes along the way, and one of those changes is going to be right here on the flagship show. This This is one of the last episodes that I recorded in 2021, so I'm considering um, my first episode that I actually record this year, which is coming up very shortly, and I'm not going to mention who it's with because let's just say I want to make sure I don't get Schneidered first, if if you know what I mean, Uh, and longtime fans will know what I mean, Uh, but really I just want to kind of have a little bit of a different feel, a different vibe to the show, a different kind of guest that I'll be bringing on, and uh, you're going to see that sort of, I guess what we can call a soft relaunch two weeks from today because that'll be the first interview that I have actually recorded in 2022, the first interview where you'll see different graphics on the video if you're watching the video versions of these shows, uh, which you can find. I recommend finding them on Odyssey. We all know our time on YouTube is very, very limited, so please do subscribe to the Lions of Liberty Odyssey channel uh, if you want to check out the video shows. And of course, as always, you can check out these interviews live by becoming a supporter of Lions of Liberty either on Patreon at patreon.com slash Liberty or now on Locals as well over at lionsofliberty.locals.com. That being said, let's get to roaring, shall we? My guest today is long overdue to appear on this program. He is the founder and CEO of Crash and the founder of Praxis, two great companies which help people pursue careers in really innovative ways. We'll get into that in a little bit. He's also the host of a podcast by his own name, the Isaac Morehouse Podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome Isaac Morehouse. Isaac, first things first, are you ready to roar? Oh, I'm absolutely ready to roar. I was born ready. Yes, I kind of figured you would be, Isaac. And uh, it it is your first time here, so why don't we just take it from the top? Why don't you go take us way back, as far back as you want, maybe all the way back to baby Isaac, and give us some insights on uh, you know just how you got started down this path of you know I I normally say like how you got down this path um, towards having interest in the ideas of liberty. I I think for you, it's more than just interest in the ideas. Um, You know, one thing I love about you it's it's not just interest it's action and uh you know you the action you've been taking has certainly created more liberty in your own lives and the lives of others and that's something I, I really look to emphasize uh especially in the last year or so here so how did this all start for you
0: yeah that's a that's a great question and it did absolutely start with the ideas for me and it took me a long time before i kind of realized the need to um to to put my energy into building alternatives, into entrepreneurship as a way to advance Liberty. Um, but, but, but the motivating, the motivating drive has been from day one, from, I would say my early to mid teens, um, to make people free, uh, starting with myself. And that's, that's what really, I mean, that is my core passion in life. Um, and everything I've done, you know, has come out of that. So, I, I grew up in um, Kalamazoo, Michigan. You see my uh, Detroit Tigers hat. Uh, I'm also a Detroit Lions fan. Uh, it's very depressing. Um, I, I'm a Bills guy,
1: so I, you know I get it. Oh, although although well, it's, it's not too bad lately. Because oh,
0: yeah. look, I got to tell you, these Libertarian types, man. They, they're they not too good on the sports stuff. You know, well, they'll, they'll call ball. it sports ball and other cringy stuff like that. It's like, come on. I mean, simu- simulated voluntary warfare and voluntarily uh, having irrational collectivist patriotism. That's, that's great because that's that's how you channel that stuff in a non-destructive way. So anyway, little little rabbit trail there.
1: I like sports at their core are... I don't know if I want to say they're libertarian, but they're certainly enriching uh, to the, to the athletes too. They can be enriching to the fans that watch them. But I, I think over the past, especially over the past several years, um, so many sports and the coverage of those sports have been overtaken by wokeness and things that really have nothing should have nothing to do with the sports themselves. So I think that even more so um, it's, it's, that's created more of a kind of anti sports reaction. In, in a lot of people, even in myself, like sports that I used to yeah. enjoy, it's cringe to watch them sometimes.
0: It's so it's so bad. I remember the, uh, the the NBA finals in the bubble it was so so cringe everything about it was weird there's no fans i could
1: not i realize i could not watch sports without fans no
0: it was me either that was the probably the least i've watched in forever um but yeah but i i think sports are a, like a one of the things that make a free society um rich and full and and function really uh to to channel again some of those um you know collectivist impulses which can be dangerous into something that's not dangerous um and uh so anyway i'm a big fan and and it is it is really sad that is
1: like actually an important insight i know we don't intend to talk about sports for an hour but i mean it's when you talk about channeling that collective instinct because one thing I've talked about a lot lately, like that the idea of like worshiping something or that, that like tribalism and being connected to a tribe, it is kind of in us. And even as libertarians, if we say we want to reject that, like we're these rugged individuals, we can say that all we want, but we're still humans and we still end up defaulting back to tribalism. You even see it within the libertarian party, within factions forming, and, or just the libertarian movement in general. Um, it, it's somewhat ingrained in us to find our tribe and kind of cling on to that tribe. So if it's going to happen anyway, uh, it may as well happen in something as relatively harmless as sports as opposed to through government. Yeah, you know, it's funny
0: and, and I promise I will get back to my story um, but I, I love this conversation.
1: I love tangents. I, I, I This is tangents of liberty as far as I'm concerned. So we can go exactly. with that. Exactly. Well,
0: it's funny. I was, I was just talking to my wife about this. She was like, you know, she's like, it's so... Oh, She goes, but you're cheering, you're cheering for the Lions to win because I'm a lifelong Lions fan but didn't you like pick against them in your fantasy football thing? And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand the hierarchy of sports fandom, honey. It goes your team—that's what you want above everything else, you know. And then, and then next, maybe it's your fantasy team, or maybe it's your conference or your division. Uh, and then it's you want your rivals to lose. And there's this sort of rank ordering of what you root, cheer for as a fan, right? Um, and she's like, "It just seems dumb. Why? Like, why do you? Why are you still a Lions fan?" And I said, "You don't understand. Look." There is something it's ingrained. There's something noble and necessary and really valuable about loyalty. And as a libertarian and as a radical individualist and as a radical anti-collectivist that's a very dicey thing. You can very easily feel like well no, it's irrational to like, you know, be loyal to anything and to to have any sense of collective identity and whatever. And I think largely in today's world, that is a good impulse to start with. Like that is a correct assessment. Most of the time you're trying to be manipulated by people through appeals to collectivism and school spirit and all this other bullshit. So reject that and understanding and thinking like an individual, I think is really, really powerful, but you begin to see, and we're seeing right now more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. There's this huge surge towards sort of traditionalism and like religion. And because people are, they've sort of looked at what happens when there's none of it and they're sort of freaked out. And so they're scrambling and they're looking in all kinds of crazy ways. And some of that is dangerous and some of that is, is good and necessary. And so, you know, being grounded properly in a a sense of, let's say shared identity with other individuals, which can happen in a community or a sports team or a religion or whatever. Um, Improperly grounded in a sense of loyalty, not one that is a blind obedience to an arbitrary authority. um, Those things can create the kind of stability and order and predictability that makes society functional. Like you can't have everything be um, like you, you need. You need some sense of cohesion and predictability. You don't want the use of force in any of that, and you don't want people to turn off their minds. And so, when I think of like. Well, I was born in Michigan and I grew up watching the Lions as a kid and my relatives were Lions fans. So there's this emotional appeal, but it's also a choice. I choose to allow myself to suffer emotionally for the Lions losing because I I am voluntarily entering into this type of play. It's like, I know it doesn't have real world stakes, but I choose to actually care enough to let it make me grumpy for a whole day sometimes.
1: When you're watching a game like that and you're really into it, even if it doesn't have real-world stakes, your mind doesn't know that. Like when you get enough into a game or a movie, your mind doesn't know that you're even in a movie. It, it basically you you react in the same exact emotional way, which is why it can ruin your day when you lose the big game even if you're just sitting on your couch.
0: Absolutely. And there's a sense in which that allows you to build um certain types of character traits and and i would even say integrity sometimes in a like simulated or relatively safe environment so if i can stick with my team and they're still my team through all this kind of stuff even though it costs me emotionally in some sense um I'm learning, I'm developing the positive version of loyalty, right? right? Or commitment or uh, keeping to my own, you know, promises or the, you know, my own goals for myself or whatever. There's something in there that I think is actually really valuable. There's a, Mm -hmm. there's a character trait on a sports team. You absolutely Mm -hmm. understand what I'm talking about. Being a fan is, is more removed, but you still, you still get some of it. You get to kind of practice that. Whereas somebody who only ever picks oh, I'm going to root for this team now, and then I'm going to switch to this team, then I'm going to switch to this team all the time. There's something, it doesn't really matter in terms of sports. We make fun of them as a bandwagoner, but there's something that they're missing an opportunity to develop a type of resilience uh, as just a person, which I think when shit hits the fan in the real world can actually matter, can actually be valuable. So anyway, that's a crazy little
1: diatribe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same. It's very similar. I mean... Not very similar, but sort of similar, like sports and religion in the sense of, especially like, like in high school, I, I was on the wrestling team and I got my ass kicked for years. Like I got my ass beat, but I got back up every time. And one of my most memorable wrestling matches was one where I got my ass beat, but I didn't get pinned. And by not getting pinned, my team won that, won that matchup, won the entire match. Cause we only lost by one point would have been, we would have lost by, or we only won by one point would have lost by two if I got pinned. So like stuff like that teaches you lessons about like teamwork and, you know, n- not giving up not just for yourself, but for the, for the, I hate to say it, the greater good of that team, of that voluntary team that you're a part of. And I, yeah. I think it's, yes. yeah, it's sort of like in our instinct as libertarians to like reject group mentality, but I think it's all about the context. Like, yeah, group think and group mentality when it comes to certain things is certainly can certainly be a negative. It can certainly lead society down some, uh, some very dangerous paths. But when it's a voluntary thing for a group cause, you know, that, that level of sacrifice, which is something you can also find in the practices of many religions, whether it's Lent or, uh, Kippur, like every religion has an element of sacrifice yep. and yep. whatever it is whether it's sacrifice for a sports team sacrifice for a religion whatever it does build character and does make you stronger in difficult times and boy we're we're certainly looking at some difficult times right now
0: yeah absolutely um okay so, so anyway <laughs> <back to> the- <laughs> <laughs> so um grew up in michigan and uh you know my i was homeschooled as a child um And when I was when I was three, my dad was in a car accident, and uh, he was in coma for a while. He ended up coming home, but he to this day, uh, he's in a wheelchair. He has no short term memory. He requires pretty much constant care. And so that was my reality growing up. Was you know my mom was homeschooling me and my two siblings, and taking care of my dad. And there was home health aides in the house. Um, And so kind of by necessity. I had a lot of independence. So my, my homeschooling was like borderline unschooling. I mean, we took classes and played on sports teams and there was a very, very heavy social element. Um, but it was like, we had household chores and then our, our schoolwork was like, uh, mostly our responsibility. And, uh, you know, I did as little as I could get away <laughs> as little as I could, um, played a lot of Legos and then played a lot of sports, uh, and always worked, always had jobs from a very young age. So I, when I was about 14, um, I wanted to go to a local uh, private high school because they had a better basketball team. And some of my friends who had been homeschooled started going there. So I went there for one year and it was a lot of fun, but I was like, this is such a waste of time. I got to be here five days a week. And like every class is the exact same length of time, even though some people need a lot longer, some time at all. It's all, we're all on the exact same schedule. It's so like I could barely, I didn't I couldn't have time to work and make money like I was used to doing. And I just thought, I, this is just too corral. Like, I want to, I want more autonomy, more control. So, so I went there for my sophomore year, and then my junior and senior year of high school. Um, I went to community college for like three days a week, two days a week, and um, and then I worked the other days and paid my way through. Transferred my credits and went to a four year, big generic state university, Western Michigan University. So you're going to college while in high school? <laughs> yeah, basically. And then I, I worked. You know, I worked two, three days a week, and then. 18 credit hours a semester into the other two days a week or whatever. Um, And so I got my bachelor's when I was like 19. And I was, the whole time I was like, why am I doing this? Why am I paying for this? It really bothered me. I, I couldn't quite figure out. Everyone's like, you have to get a degree or you won't get it. And I was like, well, everybody says this. I guess it's true. Most jobs say degree required. But why the hell is that the case? Like, what is this actually doing? You're certainly not learning anything here. No, nobody wants to be here. The professors don't want to be here. The students don't want to be here. They're dumber than a bag of rocks. They're lazy. They don't try to. Like, I was so unimpressed with the whole experience, and I'm like, why? And I, I kind of stumbled into basically the signaling theory of education. That you're not really there to to learn. You're there to to purchase a a signal. And I remember having this epiphany. Like, okay, all I'm really buying is a piece of paper that tells the world I'm likely to be no worse than everyone else that has the same piece of paper,
1: you know, and like the average, <laughs> I could probably follow instructions. the average
0: Western Michigan university <laughs> gr- degree holder, uh, is not really anything to write home about. So, um, so I had that epiphany and I had this frustration. I was like, I want to, I, I want to build something that's like a, an institution, a college or something that, Helps people transition into the professional world. That's like not wait, no wasted time or money. The most efficient way possible. And I had a couple ideas, but I didn't know what to do with it. I was nineteen, so I kind of just put that on the back shelf of my brain and went about my my career. Now, in my career, all, all I really cared about was not doing things that I hated and advancing liberty. Um, I I you know I grew up in a conservative kind of Christian conservative. Um, so had like a, an appreciation for low taxes, free markets, generally speaking, but didn't, you know, was socially conservative as well. I think my brother told me, he's two years older than me. He said he was going to, it was the first year he was going to vote. He was 18. He was going to vote in a presidential election. And he said, I'm voting for Harry Brown. And I was like, who's Harry Brown? And he's like, Oh, go here. Cause he, he had heard him on some radio show or something. Um, and, and then I came across Milton Friedman and I read, um, not free to choose, but, uh, capitalism and freedom. And that blew my socks off because I was like, I was already predisposed. I already believed in free markets and all that stuff. But when he was making the case against, um, medical licensure laws against drug laws, uh, against prohibitions on prostitution,
1: stuff which you probably took for granted at the time. Because totally, this is just kind of normal society agrees on this. Yeah, question. and
0: and you know, and I was a I was a conservative Christian, and so like I was like, well, you know, I think that you know, certainly drug abuse is not good for you and is immoral, and prostitution is not something that I looked at as some wonderful thing, um, and the idea that the separation what's moral and what's legal, which of course everybody has when it comes to certain things. Oh, it was, it was heroic to hide Jews from the Nazis. Of course that's morality and legality are different, but then you just right. kind of forget that, right. When it comes to these social things. And so that was this radical thing to me. And I was like, holy crap. And like, I remember thinking, well, if markets work, then they work. And and this is essentially the case that Friedman's making. Like if I trust them to deliver you know groceries better than governments getting involved in regulating that and, and all that stuff, then why not everything else and and why like the 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 kind of bootleggers and Baptist phenomena that you get with the drug war like I hadn't seen that before I hadn't thought of that before the idea that you're you know the outcomes are it's gonna be worse you're you're not gonna you're not gonna get rid of sin by outlawing it uh and you are gonna enrich a bunch of crappy people so that was this huge challenge that and I was very much into, um, just on my own, just reading a lot of philosophy, theology, uh, political philosophy. Um, and, uh, you know, I had always been a very heavy in studying the Bible, and I was a big fan of C.S. Lewis. And this was, again, age 16-ish. Um, and the combination, this is so weird, but like the Bible and C.S. Lewis, along with the seed planted by Milton Friedman, basically led me to first libertarianism. First libertarianism, uh libertarianism and then anarchism. Because I, I i just ran out of excuses. Like I didn't want that to be true. I was like dragged kicking and screaming that like, well, you can't morally or practically use the state to do this or this or this or this. Or this. And I'm like, well shit, what does that leave? You know, and, like eventually I just ran out. I couldn't come up with any valid, sound argument, either morally or practically for to do anything at all and that was like very uncomfortable at first cuz i didn't want that to be true it's very inconvenient you know
1: all right gang well you know what is not inconvenient meaning it is very convenient that is investing with our friends over at i trust capital these guys are the number one best place to invest in cryptocurrencies for your future. You can protect those gains, protect that growth by investing through their traditional IRA structure. And there is just no better place to buy cryptocurrencies to pay the lowest fees to get the most competitive rates. In fact, if you join right now, through our affiliate link. They are waiving their monthly fees. You're not even gonna pay monthly fees uh, for this service. So head over to itrust.capital slash lions. Guys, if that all wasn't enough, I have something else for you. That's right. They're now going to give you, give you, Give you one hundred dollars in Bitcoin when you sign up again using our link. That is itrust.capital slash lions. Invest in your future, protect yourself and don't let the tax man get a hold of them gains. I find it interesting that you put it that way, that you don't want it to be true, because I think in many ways it's it's easier for us to it would be it would be easier if if so things as we are told are, are true, if it's just like, yeah, true, you go to college and then everything works out perfect and you don't have to worry about anything you know, or, you know, all these myths we hear about education, about government, of course, it would be so much easier, maybe not easier in reality, but at least easier on our psyche. If it just yeah. turned out to be true, if we weren't lied to our whole life and it is a feeling of discomfort when you start to realize like, oh, like everything I've been told is kind of bullshit. And I kind of need to start learning my own path here because what I'm, what they're all telling me is nonsense. It, As much as it would be easier just to to stay in that mentality, that uncomfortableness is kind of a necessary step to to blaze a different kind of path. Yeah, and it
0: took me a long time, you know, to where now I'm like, I'm so glad that this is the reality uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But it was very uncomfortable at the time. Like, it took me a long time to sort of see um, the understanding that all of the things that we like most about life and society are already anarchic and that, like, the heavy lifting – of order and peace and prosperity in society is all being done by free market forces and all the shitty stuff, not all of it, but much of it is the state's attempts to intervene. And so for me, it was like, at first it was like, oh my gosh, well, I can't justify this morally. um, So I guess I have to believe that this is wrong, but that's a really painful, uncomfortable, awkward belief. And man, it makes life hard. And now I just don't see it that way. Now it's like, look, freedom is responsible for pretty much everything good, uh, in our lives. And, um, I just want to expand that. I just want more of that. Uh, I want to build the good parts of the world, uh, so that they crowd out the bad parts instead of sitting there and labeling immoral, immoral, wrong, this is wrong. This is, and then trying to tear down those bad things, which is what was my initial approach. Um, that is really depressing. And that is really hard. And you eventually either go crazy or you give up and you turn in and sell out. I, I fell in love with the ideas of Liberty. And I came across uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Back then they had this really janky website and they had these audio clips. You, this was like before you, the video wasn't even on the internet to speak of. Um, and I would listen to these audio clips of evenings at fee, these different lectures from people um, everyone I could get. And I would read every article I could come across by Leonard Reed, the founder of fee, um, Frederick Bastiat's that, which is seen that, which is unseen was just absolutely life-changing for me. Um, and then I got into, uh, Mises, I came across the Mises Institute and I read, I read like almost everything by Hayek and Mises, like literally all their books. Then I got into Menger. I got, I mean, I went really deep. Um, eventually did like a master's of uh, history of economic thought from like a heavy Austrian program uh, while I was working. But I was just super into it, 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 the ideas of Liberty. It fired me up. I was passionate about it, but all this happened like in college. And then when I got out of college, my first, my first job out of college, I worked in state government. I worked in the state legislature. Cause I was like, okay, I want to expand freedom. Uh, the things keeping people from being free are, you know, government policies. I guess you got to change those. You got to get into to politics, Um, and man, that was a huge, uh, a huge error. Um, and it took me a couple years to figure that out. Uh, being there working in the state legislature, uh, seeing how the sausage got made. Um, I mean, I could tell you stories for hours about how like just absurdly corrupt and stupid and impotent and it all is like politics is not where you go to, to make change.
1: What about one story? Do you got just one story?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was one point at which, I controlled like 12 votes in the Michigan House of Rep- <laughs> Representatives. Uh and that's not that's not like oh this is great. It's just a reflection of how stupid the process is. So the you'd have votes going up. On, what do you mean by controlled? Well, I'll tell you. So on the house floor, um you know, they're voting on all these bills and during a session, sometimes they'll vote on like 100 bills and they're just the bills are going up and all the and all the state representatives are like milling about chatting with each other chatting to the media online on ebay buying shit they're not paying any attention they don't know what's in any of these bills at all and they're like of course not yeah. how am i supposed to vote and they kind of just look around and their party usually tells them or whatever well i worked for this guy who had like negotiated that i could be on the floor staff were not supposed to be on the floor but i was on the floor because basically he just whatever he he helped the very all stupid political stuff so anyway I'm on the floor and he would always talk to the media the whole time. He'd sit over at the media table and just like talk with them and whatever. And he said, okay, you just sit here as the votes come up. And then you just tell me, I don't want to have to pay attention. You tell me if I vote yes or no. And he happened to be like a libertarian guy, uh, which is why I was working for him. But he said, if they expand government, it's a no. If they shrink government, it's a yes. If it's unclear, just make it a no. And so I would go to the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. They had a thing called MichiganVotes.org and they would have really short summaries of bills because that was the only way you couldn't tell from the bill itself what the hell it did or what was in it. I mean, these are hundreds of pages. They're full of all kinds of stuff. So I'd go to MichiganVotes.org. A bill would come up, you know, House Bill 6122. I would quickly pull it up and you only have like a minute or two that like the roll is open. You can vote and i'd be like scanning the description and it would say this bill undoes a previous provision that provided funding for this thing this is now undoing it and you're like oh good it cuts funding and then it would say you know but then there's an amendment to redo it with a with more you know so you got to figure out really quick i'm like okay this oh, is wow. spending money to go to some tart cherry commission or some bullshit right and so i would just be like <laughs> no i put my thumb down and the representative would run over and press the no button well he was sitting with all these guys who were kind of like conservative Republican types from West Michigan, which is more like. Is there literally a button? Yeah, there's literally a button. They have like their chairs, and there's like a green button and a red button. Then it shows up on the big booth, like the name wow. of the rep in red or green, whether what based on what they voted on. Um,
1: oh, you mean for their vote? Not like I thought it was like a a communicated button. Like I'm going to send a message. No, no, no for to for to their
0: lie. for their vote. So I would just tell him what to vote, and then he would run over and press it because um, it's some kind of like like horrible crime. If I touch that button, uh, it's like you get like taken out in, you know, handcuffs, but, um, but so, so eventually all these other guys were like, wait a minute, Leon always has, he always knows Leon, what is this bill? What, what should we vote on? This is the guy I work for. And he'd be like, uh, Isaac says it's a no. And they were all kind of like roughly limited. Go- <laughs> this kid says right, it's they're bad. like limited government conservatives. <laughs> so they would all just start to do, oh, whatever Leon's doing. So like at one point, my thumb, if it was a thumbs up, it'd get like 12 votes. Yes. If it was a thumbs down and get like 12 wow. votes. No.
1: Your first job essentially. And you are deciding what these like seasoned seasoned congressmen or senators are are decided voting on.
0: Well, here's what's crazy about it, right? These votes were all meaningless. Because the bills, everybody already knows what's going to happen with every bill in these things, because they already went through committee, they already came out. And so the Speaker of the House, the only reason they're doing them is because they already know the outcome and they know what's going to pass and what's not. And they don't need, unless it's a really controversial bill where it's going to be really close and they need a particular number of votes or whatever, they don't really care. It's not changing the outcome. When it is controversial, this is where it gets really ugly. And this is how you see why you can never make the world more free through politics ever. You can only lose your own soul. You can't save anyone else's. Uh, I would, we have instances. Let's say there's a bill to, um, let's say it's a tax increase. And you have, at the time, there was a slight Republican majority in the House when I was there. So you have the Democrats over here. They're all going to vote yes on it. Uh, cause it, whatever it's, they, they want it for some reason. They're going to give money to the teachers unions or some shit. The Republicans, um, are pretty much all going to vote. No, but there's a few exceptions, right? And so let's say that, let's say that they need this bill to pass, or let's say, let's say the bill's not going to pass anyway. Okay. Cause this, this is an instance I can think of specifically. So this is a tax increase and it's not going to pass. So you got all these Democrats that are going to vote. Yes. And you got all these Republicans most of whom are going to vote. No. And there's a certain number of Democrats who have to vote no on it because they're in a district that's very tightly contested. Most districts are 100% Republican, hundred percent Democrat. There's no, there's no real, you, you don't need to like do anything to win as, as that party in most districts, but there are some that are tightly contested where it's a very close race. And so those battleground districts, if you're running as a Democrat. The Republican can use against you that you voted for a tax increase and that might actually work. And so let's say there's 10 Democrats who are like, we need to vote um, no on this thing. And you've got similarly a handful of Republicans who are like, we need to vote yes on this or we'll lose our election. So what happens is you need this thing. You need this thing to pass if you're the speaker of the house, cause you've made all these bargains and agreements. Okay. We'll let you pass this bill. You let us pass this bill. you got all this crazy stacking up of these bargains. You need it to pass and it's going to pass. Right. Okay. I, I said, it wasn't, but let's just play this. It's a tax increase. It's going to pass. Mm-hmm. You are a conservative Republican. Let's say, you know, let's say you're a libertarian running as a Republican. or It doesn't matter. You're in a really safe district. You're going to win no matter. What. If you're
1: in office, you're probably a Republican. If,
0: yeah, if you're yeah. You're you're going to win no matter what you vote because your constituents, like you're not facing any democratic threat. Whatever. So, the Speaker mm-hmm. of the House comes to you and says, "Hey, look, this tax increase is going to pass one way or the other. You can vote no against it, and it's not going to change it. It's going to pass. So your vote doesn't change a thing. However, if you vote no." This other Republican is going to have to vote yes, because we promised the Democrats that we would do this in order for them to do this other thing, blah, 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 blah. This other Republican, he's moderately limited government. Um, and if he votes yes, he might lose his election. That might hurt him. He might lose his election. And then the Democrats will have the majority. And they're bigger government than we are. So. If you, if you want to be selfish and say, I voted no on a tax increase and let it pass anyway, go ahead. And then your colleague who's going to be forced to vote yes, he could lose his election and be replaced by someone who's even worse. And so by voting, by selfishly voting yes and having a clear conscience, you're going to, the bill's still going to pass and we're going to lose majority to the party who's even bigger government than we are. So you're going to grow the size of government by sticking to your conscience. And then you got to look all those people in the eye. You work with them all day, every day. And you got to say, I'm going to vote yes anyway, because it makes my conscience feel good. Sorry, you're going to lose your election. And I don't care. And they're all going to see you as a backstabber, right? And like, and the outcome will be as they predicted. The tax increase will still pass, and that guy will be replaced by a worse guy. And so that's what you face all the time. There is no way to be principled in politics. You can't. And if you go down that road and you say, okay, I'll do the lesser of two evils. I'll vote for the tax increase. When- That is just as slippery of a slope because that shit never ends. And before you know it, you're an evil piece of shit doing all kinds of horrible things because you're good at politics. You can't be good at politics and a good person at the same time. I'm sorry. It's just not possible. So I saw that kind of stuff firsthand and I, and that was when I learned public choice theory as well and realized politics is not the answer. I'm going to get, I'm going to get ruined if I try to do this. Cause I, I moved to a particular district to set myself up to run for state office. And then, you know, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I, I saw, I was there for uh, almost three years and I I was like, I need to get out ASAP or it's going to suck me in. Cause I saw the lifers. I saw people, I saw a guy who was the chief of staff for the, for the most liberal, big spending, big government person in the state Senate. He was her chief of staff. I walked in the office and I saw Atlas shrugged on the shelf. And I said, whose book is that? He said, it's mine. I go, it is. He goes, yeah, I'm, I'm a objectivist. And I'm like, but you've been working for like 10 years for this. He just saw it as a job. It was like, this is just my job. Well, that's what I believe, but this is just what I do.
1: Maybe it may be believing that is just a hobby and doing this is just a job, and neither of them need to intersect. It
0: happens inevitably. You get really a really cush job, you get tons of vacation. The pay is only so so, but you get all these benefits and you get people lobbyists treat you like a god. I got free tickets to anything I wanted to, because I was on the appropriations committee for a while over higher education. So every college in the state was like giving me tickets to football games, giving me, they, I didn't even tell anyone I was having a baby, and there was like a bunch of onesie, like a bunch of baby gifts stacked up on my desk when I came back from every college in the state because it it was budget time and i and i was the staff member on that committee and they wanted more money you know um so like that you, you just feel you get pampered by lobbyists you get sucked in so anyway politics
1: and that's you i mean if you at that level were getting that pampered imagine someone at the really high levels who's, who really has power
0: yeah i was like a 20 something kid a staff <laughs> member in the Wild. state legislature right like we're not even talking you know dc in the federal level um, so 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 i so next, I went and I worked for the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, and I was running college programs for them. I was running all around campuses on the state of in the state of Michigan, putting on events, bringing in John Stossel, bringing in different you know guys to come and and you know hold events and talk about free market ideas. And I started doing that in 07, I can't remember, um, and it was like pulling teeth for the first year. Like I think it was oh seven like these kids were like what are you talking about free economy free market ah uh, what i don't know 08 hits <laughs> ron paul happens and if you weren't there it is hard to explain for anybody today 2008 on college campuses like big like university of michigan michigan state university ron paul was insane like you saw ron paul mm-hmm. stuff everywhere Everyone loved, tons of people loved him. I would host a booth. The previous year I'd host a booth is students for a free economy. And people would be like, what is this? I don't understand. You have free stuff. Uh, The next year, the (laughs) next year, 2008 students for a free economy booth is just swarmed. And people were like, is this like free markets? Is this like that Ron Paul stuff? It was like insane what that guy did in for whatever reason, it was like lightning in a bottle, the timing among college students they suddenly started to care. They were like, I don't like Republicans. I don't like Democrats, but Ron Paul sounds kind of cool. It really was like the perfect story oh,
1: yeah. of, uh, you know, it was, it was the economic stuff at the, at the right time where he was, uh, happened to get on the stage at the right time. He probably wouldn't even be allowed on the stage nowadays. And I, I, I think a lot of people right now. I don't want to get too deep into another tangent, but who cares? uh, Like that are I feel like there's a lot of people in the Liberty Movement. I'm not just picking on you know the LP or caucuses or just I think everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people are just kind of like looking for the next Ron Paul and just waiting for that next Ron Paul moment. And I think that's just a a folly because you just can't recreate a perfect like confluence of events like that. You can create new paths and hope other things take off, but to try to recreate a Ron Paul moment, I, I don't think that's even possible. No, I'm with
0: you. It's always going to look different. You know that that's a good segue. The the next job I had, I worked for the Institute for Humane Studies, and this is a place that I knew all about their history, Baldy Harper, their founder. Um, and I loved it. I loved their strategy. It was very much right out of uh, Hayek's essay called "The Intellectuals and Socialism," um, where you know he basically lays out this. It's like a, it's like the structure of production in the economy, but it's the structure of production uh, for ideas and beliefs, basically. And Hayek essentially describes that you have like original thinkers, and then you've got like secondhand dealers in ideas, popularizers, um, you know, who are like most professors or intellect the intellectual class or people who get paid to talk or write, um, and then those kind of you know. Basically trickle down to the general public. And so most people like say John Locke's second treatise, his theories on property. Most people don't know that they wouldn't know what that is, but they believe things that come from it unknowingly because they're so ingrained, they have worked their way down through various levels of, you know, from Locke's ideas through professors to teachers to textbooks to movies and artists. And now you grow up in America and the concept, my home is my castle, is somewhat ingrained in you. Right. And so Hike basically lays this out, and he's like, look. You know, we need to find the sort of the remnant of intellectuals and influencers. That word wasn't a thing back then, but um, you know, secondhand dealers in ideas, he called them, which is both uh funny and some somewhat derogatory.
1: Aren't we all secondhand dealers in ideas at the end of the day? I mean.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and basically help build a network of those types of people who value liberty and is going to ultimately reach the general populace. And so instead, and I was I've always been the type to look for leverage in my career, like Okay, teach a man to fish, or you know, give a man a fish he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, you know, he eats for life. And I was like, well, I want to like figure out how to raise the capital to build the factories to make the rope that makes the nets that helps people catch millions of fish, right? I want to get way back in the structural production, and I want to have a really high impact on what I'm doing. I want to make the world free. And so the idea of just like putting out billboards saying free markets are good, okay, well, you're trying to directly change the populace's mind. That seems less effective than. What if we could help support, identify, cultivate, and support the next Milton Friedman, let's say, who had Free to Choose, which was hugely, probably had huge influence, and that trickled down to people. And so that was kind of IHS's mission, and I, and I think I learned along the way several interesting things, but one of them being to your point, I don't think you can deliberately create the next Milton Friedman any more than you can deliberately create the next Ron Paul. And, and I and I would put Ron Paul, frankly, in the same bucket. I don't think he was a... Polit- Ron Paul qua politician was, was useless and ineffective. Ron Paul qua public personality, celebrity, was incredibly powerful at spreading these things. Now
1: it just so happens that he's kind of the in kind of the inverse of what you were talking about earlier, where if you know if you want to be a great politician, you're gonna you know be a bad person. Well, he was like the opposite, he's like the best person and therefore not yeah. a great politician yeah. by the standard measure.
0: As a politician, he didn't he didn't do anything, he didn't do anything to to advance liberty through his votes and and the things that politicians officially do. In our culture, politicians are treated like celebrities. So Ron Paul the celebrity. Um, I think had a really big impact in in opening people's eyes up and things like that. But it's it's very dangerous if you say you want to impact people by having a big audience, saying I'm gonna build my audience by being a politician, it's probably the most dangerous route you can go, especially today, because there's so many other routes available. But anyway, so with with this mission with IHS, here's what's what happened. So they had this strategy, and they're like, Well, let's people, academia is disproportionately influential on, you know, what people think and the people come out of there and they become journalists and all these other things. And those ideas trickle down. So let's create the next generation of free market academics, the next Hayek's and Friedman's and whatever, so that the universities have these sort of, you know, beacons of liberty in there. And that was IHS's mission. I helped them run programs. And then I helped them do fundraising before I eventually left to start Praxis. And what I saw happen was, you know, around the time I left, right? I I left to start an alternative to college, right? Um, But I first pitched something like that to them. I was like, look, if we really want to help the next generation of, you know, libertarian or classical liberal advocates, why are we confining it to finding and creating professors and helping them go through and get tenure and all this stuff? Because academia itself is dead. Why are we hitching our wagon to like, Yes, that, that worked for Milton Friedman. Yes, Hayek won a Nobel Prize and that helped. The world has changed. It doesn't work that way now. And we have all these new tools. And I was like, Dan Carlin, influential than every history professor put together with his history podcast, right? Like, why are we not thinking about that type of thing? And why are we not? What about people like academia itself is just a corrupt bureaucratic, mostly state-run, state-subsidized, state-regulated piece of shit. Why are we sending people in there? And I'd seen this happen. You find some young libertarian scholar, you give them, you know, financial support and help them go get their degree and all this stuff. And then by the time they get tenure, they're just like a total squishy liberal because the things they had to do to be liked for 10 years, and they're like, oh, I can't say anything radical until I'm tenured. Well, if you're not saying anything radical, you're gonna lose your radical, right? And so it corrupts them. And I'm like, this doesn't work, right? This is this is the blueprint for, oh, look it happened on accident with Milton Friedman. Let's try to repeat that accident. And it's like, but now you have a totally different world. And so I think they completely missed the boat. Like Jordan Peterson has had more influence than every libertarian nonprofit combined in the last 10 years. And that's a complete missed opportunity, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's insane to me that, you know, like that there's no that, that there were so many organizations, and again, I was a part of that world, the libertarian um, sort of nonprofit world, with just millions, tens of millions of dollars over decades with the idea of spreading liberty. And what happens, uh, they just are completely irrelevant while like this, this new age of sort of intellectuals outside of academia. Intellectuals outside of think tanks, journalists outside of major journalism outlets. Like, we were trying to place journalisms, journals, uh, journalists at newspapers and professors at universities. Those are the two most dying industries that I can think of who are losing relevance, right? And so, um, so that's where I just came to this realization of like, I want to build the alternative I want to see. You know, um, we don't need another white paper about why taxicab cartels are a deadweight loss. We need more Ubers and Lyfts. Right. Now, of course, those can get corrupted over time as well, like anything. But we, you know, we don't need another white paper about, you know, whatever Um, the Fed, we need more alternatives to the Fed, whether it's cryptocurrency or whatever. Right. And so I was really always angry about higher education. I thought it was so stupid and corrupt from my own experience there. And I was like, instead of just talking about it and writing about it and raising money for programs that try to make college better by creating better professors, fuck that noise. I'm going to go build something that helps people escape from it altogether. And so I launched Praxis in, uh, in 2013 to do just that.
1: And we, I did a whole, um, I think it was about two years ago that I interviewed uh, Mitchell Earl uh, about Praxis. We did a whole deep dive on that. So I will post the link to that interview yep. in today's show notes where people can really go on a deep dive about Praxis. And that was the first business you founded. Uh, and then now you currently, um, uh, work for, or not work for, but you, you've also founded uh, crash. So what exactly do you do with crash that that's different than what you're doing with Praxis?
0: Yeah, this is a crash is a crazy story and a crazy sort of, illustration of um, the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. So, you know, as practice is growing and, 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 you know, doing really well, it's, it's, you know, after the first couple of years, which were a brutal slog, finally started to grow and we're profitable and we're, you know, building the team. We're up to 15 team members. We're getting, you know, 120 students going through it every year and growing and we're making good money. We're doing, you know, but I'm like, okay, this works. We've got it working. It's a pretty well-run machine. And I, I was not needed in the day to day which is always my I'm a big delegator I'm a big like I like to get things started and then hand them off. And so I had kind of set myself up to where like the the thing is running itself like a well-oiled machine. It's awesome, but I'm looking at it and I'm saying it's a very intense rigorous program. There's a there's a ceiling on how many people are are able and willing to do something like that. You know, maybe it's maybe it's 10,000 a year, but it's certainly not more than that. It's more likely, you know, Several thousand a year. I don't know. And we were, you know, we were doing, like I said, a hundred and some and growing. I'm like, okay, I can see a linear growth path to get into hundreds and maybe thousands of students per year. And that's a great business. But I got this, I have this sickness called like entrepreneurship. I get this itch. And I'm like, but I want to, I want to do something for like millions. I want to see if we can, if we can do something for millions of people. And if we can peel off one tiny bit of this Praxis experience, which is this really intense year long program and help millions of people just get a tiny bit of that flavor, um, there's something maybe we can do. And so I thought, if we can create a software platform that basically takes just the last part of the Praxis experience, which is the job hunt itself. And what we really do there is we teach people how to be their own credential. to say, look, in the signal economy, your college degree and your bullet points in your resume, they, they mean nothing now. I mean, it's so inflated. It's, it's useless. It doesn't signal anything. If somebody applied to you for a job and it said, bachelor's in communications, university of Iowa, what does that mean? Like, Does that signal anything to you about their value as a worker? It really doesn't. And so through Praxis, we would kind of teach people, be your own credential. And we were having them email like videos and little pitch decks to companies. And they were getting hired for jobs that said, Four year degree and three years of experience required. And an 18-year-old with no degree and no experience was getting that job sometimes over Ivy League students, literally. And they were doing that. No one was even asking about their education status because they showed them something more interesting right up front. They sent them a little video that said, I made a project for you. And suddenly people are like, I don't care about anything else. This is really interesting. Right. And so I thought if we could, if we could create a platform that allows any job seeker to get on and we kind of guide them through the process of just making a little a Little interactive like video pitch to send to companies instead of doing a traditional job application, then we could have something that can scale to millions of people and it can completely transform the way the job market is done. Well, that hasn't happened. Uh, it's been three years. Um, and what we found, and, and so what I what I did, I ended up raising. We split first it started as a project of praxis, but I split it into a separate company, I raised some venture capital, and this was new for me. I'm not a software guy, so I hired some software developers, and we start building this platform and over the three years since, we've had so many different iterations. I can't even count of the platform and the product itself. We've tried all these different angles. We tried a reverse jobs board where people are posting. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm up for hire, and people could upvote it. We've tried, you know, this very elaborate um, profile that guides you through how to build it through this long process. We've tried to totally serve yourself. We've. Tried, I mean, so many things. And what we found was basically, no matter what we did. We get some baseline of monthly users who would use Crash, absolutely crush it. I mean, there's like an 80% response rate to using our video pitches when you're applying for a job um, versus yeah. 0.04% on a typical job application. Literally, it's like you, it's just insane. But there's like a steady number of people that we use it every month and say, this is amazing. And then no matter how much we did with marketing and how many different angles we try, we get a whole ton of other people to come on, open it up, and then never use it again, never return to it. And we would find when we talking to these people, people are like, I haven't been, I've been looking for a job for six months. I've applied 300 times, gotten no calls back. I really need to get hired. And I'd be like, awesome. Let's go build a video pitch. It'll take you 20 minutes and then send that to five different companies. And they'd be like, okay, that sounds great. And then they don't do it. And then three months later, they're like, yeah, I still can't find a job. Maybe I'll build one of those pitches eventually. And what, what I realized was our product to scale to the size we needed with the model we had it required people to be better versions of themselves. Essentially. It required people to put in more work, not less upfront, right? So you can click one click apply a hundred times and you feel like you're doing something and you're like, oh, good. I did my nice. job hunting for the day. Um, taking 20 minutes to make a video pitch for someone is scary. It's a little different and nobody wants to do it. Not enough people to make a, a nice little business, but not a venture backed business and i raise venture capital from investors and they're not interested in a return you know that's this is the model right the venture model has right. uh, pros and cons and the model is you either hit a home run or you go out of business eventually right or or you know whatever right. the, there's not a it's not the same as like a bootstrap where you're like hey we're pulling in 20 30 50k a month this is great um so anyway kind of learning through those iterations so we we essentially just kept stripping back stripping back stripping back and now the core of what Crash is, the core of what it is, is a daily email. Now we have all these, all these services and products for job seekers, really effective, but we stripped everything down to make the only entry point into Crash a free subscription to the daily job hunt, which is a, a daily email that goes out. And you can go to Crash.co, you can subscribe right now. We launched this in July and we're like, look, trying to get people on the platform to use this tool, it requires... Too much de-schooling, really. Like I right. underestimated yeah. how much the market, you know, because the praxis market is a tighter group of really motivated people. I underestimated how different the the huge majority of people are, the huge majority of job seekers, rare types that we're working with in the praxis program. People are like, they really, really need to get those poisonous ideas from their schooling out of their mind. Those ideas that I just follow the rules. And then I just wait and I just wait. And if I don't get a job, it's just luck or bad fortune or the economy. Yeah.
1: It's not up to me. I'm not, that, I'm not that pretty that. much is, that pretty much is what we're taught in school. It is follow these rules, memorize these things, do what we say, and just keep putting those applications out. Eventually you get the job. Then you can go into debt for that house and, and go to debt for higher education then, and you know, you know, for your, your kids schooling. And then yeah, eventually you'll die. It's. Cra- I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. Pretty it's pretty like,
0: much the pitch. It's the obedience entitlement mindset, right? Obey. And then you're entitled to something. So you're like, okay, I obeyed. They told me to get the best grades, get the best degree I could, get to have the best formatted resume. Now I'm entitled to a job. And then it doesn't happen. Well, you did everything right. It can't be your fault. I guess it's the economy. Maybe I'll go protest or some shit, right? Like, um, right. And so we realized that mindset, like basically our target market needs to be deprogrammed before they can even use our product. And so we tried selling a course and and then we tried coaching, which really worked are willing to do it when you get on a 20 minute call, like in in any 20 minute call, I'm not saying this to be cocky, but I'm saying it because it's so easy. In a 20 minute call, I can change the outcomes and and change the life of almost any job seeker. Like It's not that hard, but to just crack away at some of those, but that's not a scalable model either. So we're like, what if we packaged up everything that we're all about into these tiny daily emails and said, we're going to give this away for free. Let's get every job seeker to get on this thing. And if we can chip away point oh, 1% every day at every person who reads this email, then the compounding effect of people being just a little more free, a little more alive, seeing themselves as, hey, I never thought of that. I could just email the hiring manager directly. That little change alone, all of a sudden they start thinking like an autonomous person. They unlock something that has this compounding effect. So we launched that in July. We're going to hit a hundred thousand subscribers on that probably in the next week. Um, which has That's been awesome. amazing, and then a, and then a percentage of those are trickling in and using our our tools and uh, you know other things on the job hunt. But really, I see that as like you know every morning, ten thousand people read what we put into those little emails, and they're just little. I mean, it's basically libertarian ideas. But it's specific to the job hunt. It's not talking about politics. It's just talking about self-ownership and responsibility and a sense of personal freedom and overcoming the things that hold you back. Um, so that's been really exciting to see finally, after all these iterations, something that we boiled down so tight and so small that's working at a, at a large scale. And if we can just kind of chip away a little bit, I think we we re- we did the whole company in reverse. We built this massive, really amazing product. nobody knew how to use. And then we kept stripping it down, stripping it down until we ended up with a newsletter. Again, I would start with a newsletter. This is the daily job hunt. Here it is. And then build a huge audience. And then once you got a huge audience, say, all right, now we're going to start rolling out some products for you to use little by little. Um, I think I did it all backward. We're getting a little something going now.
1: But you also kind of had to go through that to to learn that. And I I think it's such an important lesson about entrepreneurship and starting any project. And I, I speak to past and maybe present versions of myself when I, when I say stuff like this but you know I think a lot of us get held back sometimes on starting that new project or starting that company because we just don't have it all figured out we don't have the perfect plan well guess what there's no perfect plan and you're not gonna have you're not gonna start off with a perfect plan nobody does uh, the the key is starting and, and just getting yourself in there and yeah maybe you got to have like 10 failures to see the thing that works and to lead you to the thing that works and I, I think that this idea of so many of us start off with okay, I need the product that I'm going to sell for these dollars and I'm going to sell 10,000 of them and I'm going to make this much money. Maybe that can work, but especially today in the information age, being a valuable source of information, a valuable source of uh, motivation, whatever it may be, that is like such such a higher level value than just selling one product or selling one course. And that's how you really are gonna create a community. And I think that's really a part of what you're doing at Crash is creating a, a community of support and, and people that are, are sort of share like-minded values. You're helping influence those values. And I, I think a lot of people could just learn from your story about this that you don't need to have it all figured out. You don't necessarily need to have a standard business model. If you have knowledge or motivation or about anything really, just start putting it together in into some kind of package, you will find like-minded people because as, as weird as any of us might be, there's other weirdos out there that are into the same stuff we're into. So, you know, express that and, and you will find those people eventually. Now it might take a long time. I mean, I've been plugging away on this podcast for eight years, but we've developed just an incredible, solid community uh, of people here. And there's just, you can't really put a number on, on what that is.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's funny. Crash and Praxis have sort of opposite origin stories in a way. Praxis was like, I had this idea. I knew I needed to do it, whether it failed or not. I needed an answer to whether it could work. And so I just started bootstrapping it myself. And I'm basically doing every single day, as long as I could do one thing to move it forward, I would just keep going. And I initially was like, well, I guess I'll need to raise a bunch of money. And I thought, well, I don't need to, unless I literally get to a point where I can't do anything else without money. And that bootstrapper mindset was so, so valuable. Cause it's like, okay, well, is there one more thing I can do today? And I was doing this on the side at first while I had my other job and then I quit it. And I was like, you know, oh, I just need to get customers. I got, and so I'm like taking it an inch at a time every day doing something. The success of Praxis attracted a, um, A really top-notch, incredible uh, investor. He cold emailed me and was like, "Hey, I like what you're doing. Let's chat." We started chatting, and he's like, "You know, what could you do to reach millions of people and and make a billion-dollar company?" And I was like, "Well, I've got these ideas for this platform I've been toying around with." And basically, he's like, "I want to invest in this," and so I took on the investment, and so now I have a big-name investor and a big chunk of money and a big vision. And I gotta go hire developers and go build this thing. And so I'm thinking I gotta build a really big thing. And and I think when I look back on it, I, that caused me to stray from what I do best and how I operate best, which is like a grinder and a, a, a content creator. Those are kind of my my the things that I do really well. Um, and recruiting people to like help me out as like interns and volunteers while we're in that really early stage and we got nothing and we're really hungry. And that's, that's kind of where I, where I work at my best, but because I had had success with practice, I attract this investment. And so now I'm like, I'm the dude with the hot new investor and a bunch of money to work with. And I changed my MO. And I think I learned the hard way that with or without outside money, I needed to do it the same I needed to start it the same way. Okay, first, let's build an audience. That doesn't really cost anything. Let's start putting out content every day. Let's start to build up rapport and figure out what our target market's all about. Then let's start to make the smallest version of a product we can and see if we can get anybody to pay us anything for it. And then if that works, let's make it a little bigger and see if we can get more people to pay us more for it. And then and I I thought, well, I got money, I can cheat code it. I can build an incredible thing behind the scenes and then release it all at once and have this huge market and this huge and like I didn't think that's what I was doing because I, I read the lean startup and all that stuff. But I think that was what I was doing. And I think it's just a great example of how if you have a lot of money up front for your entrepreneurial idea, you'll waste it. You will. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have it, but you're going to waste a lot of it. And the longer you can go as lean as possible, the more you learn and the less likely to waste resources you are. And so like the incentive structure you face is always stronger than your own will and wisdom. If you say I've got really strong willpower and I'm really wise about resource allocation with my business, okay, great. If I say here's 5 million dollars, no strings attached, make your business really big in the next year, you're going to make a we're going to be a way worse business person. Right? Doesn't matter how good your your, your willpower and your wisdom. Are. You're going to lose it because you don't have an incentive to. You don't have to now. You don't have to. So, I think a little bit of that mixed in too. So I mean just just learning through the process. And like, like you said, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it uh, or, or, you know, I don't want to say I wouldn't do it any other way. Cause like, I'm like, Oh, there's all these things I would do differently, but I had to go through it. I had to go through it to learn it as, as you know, to your point. So.
1: Yeah. I had to do a couple years of shitty podcasts yes. to, to get I, I tell to everybody uh, well, that. What, what some I hope would call slightly a better podcast.
0: <laughs> People will be like, I want to launch a podcast. Um, what should the topic be? What kind of mic do I need? Do I, should I bring on guests? What What's the format? And I'm like, until you have released twenty twenty 20 episodes, those questions are irrelevant. Get 20 episodes out the door. That's all that matters. Once you've done that, all those questions become
1: relevant. Until then, they're just excuses. Just get them out the door and you can go delete them later. These these questions tend to answer themselves exactly. if you just get started. Exactly. And getting started is, is where so many people get stuck. I mean, I was stuck for months. I was like, oh, I'm going to start this podcast. And then I just didn't for months. I bought a microphone. I had like the stuff. I just didn't do it. And it was only when Stefan Kinsella, I was like chatting with him one day. He's like, you know, it'd be easier if we just talked about this on a call. And I was like, well, if we're already having a video call, I guess I should record it and start the podcast. So so that, that's kind of how it started. But yeah, I mean, it's, it can be hard to make that first jump, that first leap into actually starting to think the thing, because then you have, then you've actually put something on the line. Then you've actually put yourself into something and there's a danger there. There's a danger of not even, it's almost a guarantee nowadays, like someone's going to make fun of you on the internet. Someone's going to call you stupid. Like YouTube comments are just like the death knell and you're going to go through all that. So there is a certain vulnerability you have to put yourself out there to, but it, it's all a necessary part of the process. Or, or worse yet, nobody pays any attention at all. Oh well, yeah, worse yeah, worse yet. I I guess you're lucky if people are talking shit about you, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, you know and and that's a great point because that brings me kind of full circle to that is basically my philosophy on advancing liberty, on making the world a freer place. That the same thing you just said about business that you got to learn it by doing it. It will emerge as you get your hands dirty and try to solve those problems. So one field experiment is worth thousands of thought experiments, right? It's like we can sit around and talk about trolley problems and all these made up ideas, or we can go out in the real world and say, "What's a real problem that I can solve?" And I felt like that it was like all these debates, and I was reading all these libertarian takes on higher education. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a uh, it's a signal that you're buying, and maybe the subsidy is this, and maybe and then never be a debate. Well, you you know, it's not it's not really entirely status. The university system is quasi private, and then people debate how private is it, how free market is, and then I'm like. Well, I just think it does a bad job at preparing people for the workforce. And I think for less time and money, they could do it better uh, under a different model. If I think that, I need to go and try that. Like, What's the point of debating it? Let's go try it in the real world. Now I get to say, when I debate with or whatever about the, the you know, employability value of a college degree, I get to say, no, all of your theoretical arguments you put together on signaling theory, you're actually wrong. It's not an employee. It's not a valuable employability signal. And he'll say, but I've asked employers and they've said it is. And I'll say, well, you're an economist. You should know the difference between stated and revealed preferences. I've asked employers too. Hey, do you require a degree for this role? They all Mm -hmm. say, yes. Then I've sent them 10 people's pitches without degrees and they all get interviews and they Mm -hmm. get hired. So I can tell you from real world experience, I have helped thousands of people without the proper credentials get jobs that supposedly require Mm -hmm. them. I can tell you that degree is not doing the heavy lifting in people's hiring decisions. They don't even necessarily know that, but their actions tell that and I have the proof because I'm in the real world and I'm learning it and I'm adjusting on the fly and I'm figuring out what does matter to them and how can I sell them something that they that matters more to them than even they themselves know how to put into words. Like that's where it gets exciting and that's how you build a free world is not debating about which version of a private property society is better go fricking build it
1: and see what you can make work. Yeah. I've had that jobs like that, that say college degree required. And then I found out, you know, getting to know my coworkers and like about half of them don't have that thing. Like, but it said required. No, they just went into the workforce, gained some experience and their experience mattered so much more than some kid that showed up with a degree without it. Even if it says so in their company, you know, guidelines or what have you, that that's a guideline.
0: If they were serious about that, they would like go investigate because you. I mean, literally, you can. put, I know people that have just put. They had a degree on their resume, and to see if anyone would check it, and no one does because it's obviously not doing the heavy lifting of, of letting them know who's valuable to work. They at. might call your references
1: or your employers, but they're not going to look at your college. Like they're they're just not going to do that.
0: Right, right. I mean, and it, and if a degree was that valuable of a signal, then it'd be easier to just call a college professor and be like, "Hey, you know," or a, or a college graduation office and say, "Hey." You people who have come from your school are so reliably valuable. Fill these five roles right. for me. Just yeah. send me five people because I can trust that if they graduated from there, they're going to be good. Nobody would ever do that in a million years because it's an incredibly weak signal. So anyway, that's just a you know, one example of I think how how liberty works in the real world. I mean, this is straight out of Hayek's explanation of, you know, the use of knowledge in society and the way that you learn through doing. It. I mean, and again, this is right out of John Hazness, the obviousness of anarchy, uh, the The fact that we can debate all these theoretical problems that would happen in a free society or the should should we gradually reduce the state versus meanwhile the state is just growing while we're debating how to theoretically reduce it, right? Instead, if you get out there and say, I'm gonna pick one problem that maybe it's caused by the state, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a problem that civil society would be better if it was solved. And I'm gonna go solve it in a in a peaceful way. In an enterprising way, and I'm going to make a profit in the process. Try that over and over and over again. And if you succeed at that, you will have done more to make the world a freer, better place than any number of books and debates coming up with the final knock-dead argument about whether a stream that you pour something in that pollutes my land is, you know, you're liable for that and whether a private court can handle that, right? Like, now I love that stuff. I'm an intellectual, I nerd out on it but you're not going to solve it unless you start experimenting.
1: I've made a name for hosting debates about the theoretical here on Lions Liberty, but I I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. So still come listen to the debates, but realize that it's that's kind of like the fun thing. That's not the same as the application of just going out there and and working and seeing where things go.
0: Yeah. and, and, And let those debates... I mean, that's what led me to entrepreneurship. It took me 10 years before I eventually started business, but it was... It was a... It was my obsession and my passion with those things. How does the world change? How do you make it more free? When there are examples of bad policies that went away, like prohibition, how did that happen? What are the dynamics of social change? How do you, you know, how do you reduce the role of the state and increase the role of freedom in this area and this area? And I would study it and I would think about it. And eventually I kind of connected the dots in one particular area of kind of education and career. And I saw that there's an opportunity to go and test this out and go try it. And so this is not an anti-intellectual or anti-debates or ideas um, argument at all. It is a, in addition to that, go out and test it. Go out and test it out. Try stuff, you know, try your your little uh, whatever (laughs) freedom freedom communities or your, your business that sells, you know, whatever, like all of it get your hands dirty. Cause we're going to discover a lot more and play with technology. You know, we're going to discover a lot more ways to expand freedom. Um, if we're, if we're dabbling as we're discussing.
1: Well, I think that's a great way to wrap things up. Isaac really appreciate you coming on the show, working through the internet issues and on all <laughs> that fun stuff. So, uh, much appreciated. Uh, before we wrap up, just let everybody know all the places they can find everything you're doing, uh, what you're doing with the podcast, feel free to plug away on anything you got.
0: Sure. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the podcast because I actually love it, but I, I I don't do it regularly anymore. I mm-hmm. used to for several years. Now it's just kind of like randomly whenever I feel like talking or interviewing somebody. So, um, but you can, you can find Isaac Morehouse podcast. Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter and isaacmorehouse.com is my website you can find links to crash and praxis there if you google me i mean isaac morehouse is a fairly uh unusual name and you'll find you'll find my stuff uh wherever so and you can email me too isaac at crash.co i i'll i'll respond i'm like a a freak zero inbox i respond to pretty much all emails within 24 hours max so um i will respond if you have questions and you want to chat
1: awesome well isaac thanks so much for coming on man it's been an absolute blast keep up the great work and of course keep on roaring thanks mark all right Katie cats i hope you enjoyed my conversation with isaac morehouse the guy that's been on my quite long short list of people to interview for quite some time here and uh, even though he is really uh, i recorded that interview last year and it's kind of you know, one of the last interviews of what you might call the old era of lions of liberty isaac certainly does fit in more you might say with the new era of lions of liberty that is forthcoming uh in a couple of weeks here with well i guess you'll just have to wait and find out let's put it that way but do stay tuned there are great grand wonderful things coming to Lions of Liberty this year and how much we grow, how much we continue to grow is going to be largely contingent on how much support from our listeners we have. Uh, As I mentioned, there's a few ways you can support us. You can also just go to our website. There's other ways to support us there as well through cryptocurrency, through PayPal, uh, if you just want to do one-time donations. Uh, But we also have, of course, our Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, as well as our uh, locals as well, lionsofliberty.locals.com. Patreon, you do have more options. There are more different kind of perks you have, whereas locals is basically just a, you know, it's a little bit of a social community, social network kind of thing too, but we are, we're just starting to get some people into there. So we haven't really built up that aspect of it too much, but you can get all of the content, all of the bonus content, all of the live streams, all of the extra shows we do like conspiracy corner, Brian's good morning, bleep head, um, degenerate gamblers, conspiracy corner, all that fun stuff you can find over either on locals or Patreon. So you get the content either way, uh, Patreon, we just have more tiers and more, options options, more perks like our Nittany level where you can produce an episode of this show once per year, our Aslan level where you get a mention like I'm about to do right now for our friends Nate and Charlie over on Good Morning Liberty. These guys crush it five days a week and they really know how to talk about the ideas of Liberty, uh, filtering it sort of through the daily news kind of thing, uh, something that I do, don't do at all. I am so behind on news I hardly ever know what's going on until I tune into either, of course, Brian on Wednesdays with Electric Liberty Land, but really the GMS guys, GMF. (laughs) That's good morning, Bleephead. That's Brian's uh, Patreon show. Uh, But no, better than the GML guys. There we go. Good morning, Liberty. So do check them out, please, my friends, Nate and Charlie, who are longtime fans and longtime supporters of this show. Check them out at their still very awesome URL, bernielies.com. That's all I got for this week, kitty cats. Until next time, don't forget to live free.